Welcome to the clan! This is a show dedicated to helping singers, songwriters, and indie artists like you create leverage in the music business. Leverage is what you're going to need in today's music industry to get ahead. You're going to have to show some business. You're going to have to show that you know what you're doing, how to write songs. You know how to work the levers here behind the curtain. If you're going to take the next step, you're not going to be discovered out of thin air and then turned into a star. And that's that's why we called it The Climb, C-L-I-M-B, Creating Leverage in the Music Business. There's a lot to it, and that's a Baxteronym, and that comes from my good friend and co-host, Mr. Brent Baxter, who's an award-winning hit songwriter with cuts by Alan Jackson, Randy Travis, Lady A, Joe Nichols, and more. And what I love about Brent is he helps songwriters like you by revealing how to write like a pro do business like a pro. And then on a regular basis, he gives you opportunities to connect and create relationships with the pros so that you can climb that ladder and, and uh, exploit yourself, so to speak. Right. You can find Mm -hmm. Brent very easily at songwritingpro.com. Once again, that's songwritingpro.com. And I would like to introduce you to my co-host, Johnny Dwinnell. Johnny owns Daredevil Production. They're breaking artists digitally by identifying new fans through data. It's complicated, but Johnny's smart. If you're an artist looking to increase your streams, blow up your video views, sell more live show tickets, and get discovered by new fans, TV, and music industry pros, then Daredevil Production can help. Daredevil has worked with multi-platinum artists like Colin Ray, Tracy Lawrence, Ty Herndon, and Andy Griggs, just to name a few. You can find Johnny at DaredevilProduction.com. That is production singular no s and there's no s because there is no other johnny d how you doing brother man i'm good i'm good i was just telling you off air i just got my new mr coffee mug heater for my office a little christmas gift to myself (laughs) my office can get a little chilly it's an old almost 100 year old house and this was a little add-on so it's not on the really the rest of the central heat and air like the rest of the house so i'm like ooh, keep my coffee hot yeah that's my big win for the day johnny that's awesome. And I was telling you off air, like, I don't understand why you would need that. You, you drink your coffee too slow. Like- <laughs> I do drink it. The second cup gets slow. The first one is usually pretty good. The second one gets slow. I slow down. I drink my coffee like I drink my whiskey. <laughs> Fast and furious. <laughs> I'm on it. I'm more of a drip, just a constant drip throughout there the you day. Go. <laughs> That's how I do it. Just steady. And Ben, if I could get around town and do that, like have just an IV, a drip of whiskey, I'd, I'd probably do that. Like yep. that would keep everything on an even keel. <laughs> <laughs> or keel All right. Over. Well, th- yeah. today, uh, the title of today's episode is Jimmy Ivan agrees. This is the best time to be an artist. And yeah, what does he know? there's a great interview with him that was done in the New York Times. And we're going to unpack that interview a little bit and just kind of talk about what happens with that. But before we do that, let's take care of a little business. As always, we are super stoked, excited, proud as Peacocks to be a part of American Songwriters Podcast Network. I mean, that's a 36-year-old brand, and everybody that you and I and Brent want to be has been on the cover that's right. of that magazine. <laughs> Last three issues at the time of this recording, John Bon Jovi is on this month's uh, had an interview with him. Then the month before is Garth Brooks. The month before that is Phineas, yeah. producer and writer of Billie Eilish, her brother, all right? that stuff. So, right, come on. I mean, that's a good little range <laughs> right there, just those three. That's It's all about the songwriter. I love it. And uh, 
Join the Climb community if you haven't done so. This is a great Facebook community. We run a pretty tight ship, but it's all about peace, love, and grooviness, and indie artists, songwriters, indie musicians, singers. This is a great place for you to hook up, get co-writes, learn more about the business, ask marketing questions, business questions. You're going to get a lot of answers from a lot of pros. There's pros in there. There's amateurs in there. There's aspiring pros in there. And we want you to be a part of it. So you have to ask to be let in. But we let everybody in. Just be good boys and girls. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your podcast. That way you get all of the episodes and you can consume them at will. My podcast episodes, I'm typically not up to date on. I'll binge them, you know, so I like to make sure they're where I can get to when it's time to binge them. And then tell a friend about it if you haven't done so already. That's the best tribute Mm -hmm. you can give to Brent and I and make sure that, hey, well, why do these guys get to own 40 minutes of your time on a weekly basis? Well, Mm -hmm. Here's why. And and let them know because maybe we can help them too. And leave a rating and review. We're trying to get to 200 before the end of the year. So please take 30 seconds and do that. Yeah, we'd appreciate it. And also just want to share uh, some new heights for the week. So every week in the Climb community, we have a post on Wednesday says new heights and you are welcome. We want you to leave a comment bragging on yourself, celebrating so we can celebrate with you. Big or small, we love them all, all the wins. So I just want to share this one. This is from Sunday Joe Graham, climber. She says, I got a video recorded and ready to go for Tootie Mae's new single, Holly Dolly Christmas. So Sunday is a songwriter, but she has an alter ego, which is Tootie Mae, who does country parodies of songs. She'll rewrite like One Margarita, you know, that uh, uh-huh. Luke Bryan song to One Block Velveeta. <laughs> And uh, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's fun anyway. So she has a new single coming out called Holly Dolly Christmas. So she's excited to get the video recorded and ready to go for that. And so people are just sharing their wins in there. So we hope you'll come on in and join the celebration. Good for her. All right. Well, yeah. let's get down through this. Let's dig into this one here. This might end up being one of my quicker ones, if you can believe that. I'm going to say that up front because that'll be long because it'll just drag out. But um, for those of you who are not familiar with Jimmy Iovine, let's just give a brief history on him. This is a music mogul. This is one of the greats in the music industry who thinks at a very high level out of both sides of his brain, right? Mm -hmm. Artistically, as well as business-wise, he's a great salesman hustler. And just to give you a little bit of the resume here, he started as a recording engineer in the 70s, and he worked with John Lennon. He worked with Bruce Springsteen. And I mean, his first record with Bruce Springsteen was the Born to Run album. He engineered that. He also engineered Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell albums, both of those. Um, Patti Smith's album Easter, which included her top 1040 hit Because the Night, which is, by mm. the way, written by none other than Bruce Springsteen. I wonder oh. how that happened. Oh, I wonder. Yeah. Interesting mm. relationship. Connect the dots. Yep. And he co-produced with Tom Petty. He co-produced Damn the Torpedoes. That was Tom Petty's breakthrough record. Didn't know this. U2's Rattle and Hum. He produced that. Wow. Um, Belladonna from Stevie Nicks. Making movies from Dire Straits, Get Close for the Pretenders. I mean, this dude is all over. He uh, did music supervision in a couple of different feature films back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And in 1990, he co-founded Interscope Records, which became Interscope Geffen A&M after a merger in 1999. So Ivine's the one who signed Tupac Shakur. And also he created, or at least he was the money behind Death Row Records, which was a huge, 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 huge label and a big moneymaker in the 90s. And he signed artists there like Eminem, which is, Hmm. I mean, one of the best-selling rap artists ever, 50 Cent. 
and co-produced the eight mile record with uh, Eminem. I mean, this guy's all over the place. Oh. Then get this. <laughs> but there's more. There's more. Like this guy doesn't stop. Okay. So in 2008, he teams up with Dr. Dre and he co-founded Beats, the headphone company with mm-hmm. Dr. Dre. It's a headphone brand. And by 2012, this headphone company had captured 20% of the market share. They wow. did that out of pragmatism. They just you know, I think especially when you're talking about like from Dr. Dre's perspective and in the rap world, there's a lot of sub lows that are happening, like sonically speaking. Mm-hmm. And man, those aren't going to come through in a pair of earbuds, you know, and all the producers that I work with and stuff, when they send me a mix, but they're like, OK, don't listen to that in your earbuds. Get some real headphones. I'm like, OK, OK, like I will, you know, like I got freaking studio monitors in my office. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, dude, I'm not going to do you wrong. <laughs> Because they want you to hear the whole thing. But uh, they sold Beats in May 28th of 2014 to Apple for $3 billion. And at the point that that happened, by the way, he was hired by Apple in some sort of undisclosed. We don't don't know exactly what he was doing, but I think he was there for like (laughs) two or three years making a, a salary with Apple. So he's firmly got one foot, obviously, in the music industry, but also in tech. And it's about the difference between the two. And I think of a lot of the music executives, he's certainly one of the most outspoken about how that should work. He's the man. He's the man. Yeah. Yeah. So in December of last year, okay, and I've quoted from this before in our podcast, this article, but I want to unpack and dig into it because first of all, it validates a lot of the stuff, Brent, that you and I have been saying on this podcast for years. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad he's been listening to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I mean, hey, Jimmy, no extra charge, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> whenever Jimmy needs something, he comes to me, right? <laughs> okay, that's not true. We're kidding about We're kidding. that. Don't don't believe me. <laughs> I've never met Jimmy Ivan. I have no idea who he is. But I'm going to read a little bit from this article, and then I just want to focus in on some points from this because this, to me, is it's a mind blow. So it's a New York Times article. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. The author is. Ben Cesario. I have no idea who he is, but I love this article. And the title is Jimmy Iovine Knows Music and Tech. Here's Why He's Worried. Ooh. Which maybe goes against what the title of this podcast is. Yeah. But see, why he's worried from a record label executive position is why we should be excited. This is where the opportunity is. And he's retired now, okay? Uh, I'm not going to read it all to you, but I'm going to read definitely some parts of it. So the beginning is uh, the record executive who made the leap to Silicon Valley looks back on a decade in the music business and sees a major problem on the horizon. The biggest story in music over the last decade was the industry's reconciliation with tech. After a decade of fighting the Internet, the music business fully embraced it in the 2010s. Streaming has now finally returned the business, which was nearly decimated by the shift from physical to digital formats, to growth. Mm-hmm. Perhaps no one has a broader view of this phenomenon than Jimmy Iovine, the producer and record executive who made the leap to the other side. He and his partner, Dr. Dre, sold their company Beats Electronics to Apple for $3 billion in 2014 and helped launch Apple Music. That's the other thing that he did. Oh, yeah, that. The tech giant's late entry to the streaming market, and they now have more than 60 million subscribers, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it was from the start a strange pairing. Apple is aggressively cautious in maintaining its public image. 
Iovine, who's the son of a Brooklyn longshoreman, blurts profanities in a high-pitched rasp and is one of music's great hustler salesmen. But Iovine, who co-founded the Interscope label in 1990 and led it until he left in 2014, has long been one of the sharpest observers of the tug-of-war between the entertainment industry and Silicon Valley. Iovine, who's 66, retired from Apple in 2018, says he's devoted himself to passion projects like the XQ Institute, and he even started taking guitar lessons, it says. He's realizing now how hard Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen jobs really were. <laughs> <laughs> now you um, figure it out. So here's some excerpts from this conversation. Back in 2010, you were still at Interscope, where you had hits with Lady Gaga, Eminem, and the Black Eyed Peas. At the same time, you were building up Beats. But within four years, you left the label and sold Beats to Apple. Why did you take that trajectory? Jimmy says, what you're talking about actually goes back 20 years. It's all a response to Napster. I saw how powerful that technology was, and I realized we had to switch gears. The record companies are not going to exist without tech. And neither are you, people, mm -hmm. right? We're out of the article now. Neither are you. You're not going to exist without tech. Think about how simple that statement is, but think about how profound it is. Yeah. Right? Like, if you haven't embraced the fact that you're going to need to understand tech, um, better figure that out fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But this is your opportunity to get ahead of everything, you know? He said, why I got into the music business originally was to be associated with things that were cool. I realized that the record business at that moment, the way it was responding to Napster was not cool. And then the, the interviewer was like, you know, meaning suing people? Because if you remember back in the day, that was just seems to be everybody's answer to something new, right? And yeah. what do the taxi cabs do when Uber comes out? Instead of spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to get their own tech out and compete, they mm -hmm. just try to get rid of them and sue them. Right. And that's what the record business did with Napster. The thing is, don't compete, delete. Just get rid of the competition. Yeah. And we just go about doing what we normally do. And it do. doesn't work that way. It's never going to work that way. There, there it is. If that makes all the sense in the world so much that you're hostile about it and willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to try to beat it, you're probably not going to get rid of it. You know, oh. you're really not. So Jimmy responds, yes, meaning suing people and putting up a moat like that was going to do something. So he said to himself, oh, I'm at the wrong party. And I met a bunch of people in tech. I met Steve Jobs and Eddie Q from Apple. And I said, oh, this is where the party is. We need to incorporate this thinking into Interscope, right? Mm -hmm. I find out a lot through the artists I work with. Dre is a perfectionist of audio, maybe one of the greatest audio producers that ever existed. And when I found out what Dre was concerned about, that the equipment his kids were listening to the music on, an entire generation was learning about audio through cheap, inefficient equipment, and that's how Beats got started. Steve Jobs used to sit with me at his Greek restaurant and draw out what I needed to do to make hardware. He'd say, here's distribution, here's manufacturing. He'd be drawing on this paper with a Sharpie, and I'd go, oh, expletive, right? Like, oh, crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. He's getting schooled, right? So what did you learn when you got to the other side? He said, I didn't want it to be the other side. I wanted it to be all one thing. I wasn't bailing on music. I always thought that technology was going to get people to listen to music in a better way, and you were going to promote it all through a streaming service, but it would all be the same house. Mm -hmm. And he said, is that where things ended up? Are music and tech in the same house or is the house divided? He said, the two sides don't speak the same language. Content doesn't know what technology is building. And engineers are just going by the way they see a problem. The streaming business has a problem on the horizon and so does the music business. That doesn't mean they can't figure it out. So what's the streaming business's problem on the horizon? So this is a big paragraph that I wanted to share with you guys. Mm -hmm. The answer is margin. Mm -hmm. It doesn't scale. 
Mm-hmm. At Netflix, the more subscribers you have, the less your costs are. That's, by the way, new Netflix, not old Netflix, because what does new Netflix have, Brent? Oh, well, they're doing their original content. They so own the content. They own the yeah. content. So once that content is paid for, it largely can scale. Whereas yeah. where it, I think he's going with this, yeah, go ahead. Go on, go on. No, go oh, on. Oh, is you that the, the cost follow you with streaming? Every time you stream a song by... Dolly Parton or whatever, you know, there's a cost because you got to pay for that stream. You got to pay the content creators. You got to pay the rights holders on that, meaning the songwriters, the publishers, the artists, all that stuff. So the more streams you get, the higher your costs go versus, hey, like a movie theater, it's going to cost us this much money to run this movie in a theater. How many people can we pack in? Because that way, yeah, and for how long our margins go in? up. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas streaming, you know, just think about movie theater. Well, it costs us for every person that's in there. So our margin stays about the same or maybe even gets worse, you know? So yeah, the cost follows you streaming. Exactly. And now back to sort of exacerbate the point here. If you factor in that Spotify and the streaming services are middlemen, Mm -hmm. right? They're distributors. And the only value that a distributor brings in any business deal, in any industry, is that they have some kind of a relationship with the end user Mm that the creator of the product or service either can't have, which used to mm-hmm. be the case in the music industry, right. and is the case now, doesn't have. Yeah. They don't have it. And another problem they're dealing with is that their costs are going up because we're actually finally winning some legal battles and holding them accountable and actually expecting them to pay us a, a more fair rate. Like we're actually getting a seat at the table to decide what they pay us Yeah, as content creators yeah. and rights holders. So actually their, their costs are going up because, oh my gosh, we got to actually start paying these people something. And I think it's important to point out once again that the streaming services don't own any of the intellectual property. Hollywood and the music industry are very, very similar industries in that they're about the same Mm age-ish, and they create artistic intellectual property, and for a century they have been promoting that artistic intellectual property on broadcast platforms, but the vast difference between Hollywood and the music industry is the product. The product is different. It still costs millions of dollars to make a TV show or a movie. And there's 40,000 uploads a day on Spotify. So Spotify can't do what Netflix did to play the game that Netflix is playing. They can't position themselves like that. However, I'm curious. Question. Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Just signed a huge deal with Spotify, right? For the Joe Rogan yes. podcast? Yeah. Mm-hmm. $100 million. Is, is that their version of like Netflix going, now we have these Netflix movies? I think that's what they're doing. Is that their version of owning some of the content? Because they, they, yeah. who's going to give them exclusive music, right? Because like music is be everywhere. But right. I wonder if the podcast is where Spotify is trying to create their exclusive. This is exactly what's going on because, uh, you know, Justin, Jill Rogan's like the big most recent story, but I'm pretty sure they're about 1.5 or $2 billion into podcast purchases. Mm-hmm. And so what do the podcasts bring, by the way? Can we just go up to 30,000 feet and forget about the content? Mm-hmm. Okay. Why would they give Joe Rogan a hundred million dollars? Uh, Cause he gets a lot of earballs on his stuff. He's got traffic. He got traffic. Exactly. He's got traffic. Hello. Yes. $100 million in traffic. Started doing it out of his living room with his buddies, right? Yeah. He who and has he the traffic rules the road. Exactly. 
Correct. So I think that's really interesting. And so, yeah, the costs follow you. So it's unsustainable. The current relationship that the DSPs, that's the digital service providers, that's Apple Music, that's Amazon, that's Spotify, the current relationship that they have in the music industry is wholly unsustainable. It won't last because it can't last because there's not Mm -hmm. enough money there. You know, but now we're going to add insult to injury. Okay, so again, he says the problem is margin. It doesn't scale at Netflix. The more subscribers you have, the less your costs are in streaming music. The costs follow you. And the other problem is that the streaming music services are utilities. They're mm-hmm. all the same, okay? Look at what's working in video. Disney has nothing but original stuff. Netflix has tons of original stuff. But the music streaming services are all the same. And mm-hmm. that's the problem. What happens when nothing is commoditized is that it becomes a war of price. Yes, and yeah. if you Nobody get the exact same war, thing... Except for the consumer. Yeah. And if you can get the exact same thing next door cheaper, somebody's going to enter this game and just lower the price. Yeah. Spotify's trying with podcasts, just to point you out, Brent. That's how mm-hmm. smart you are. And later yeah. on this article, you're right with the same mind as I, Vine. And who knows? He said, maybe that will all work. And, you know, he talks about Daniel Eck here and just he thinks he's done an extraordinary job and the deal, like, because he understands the deals that they got mm-hmm. and they're impossible deals, but they're all suffering. It's just going to break. The bow is going to break and the baby will fall, right? So then the, the interviewer asked him this, if you look at the last 20 years of the music business as a recovery from Napster, has the problem now been solved? He said, I don't view it as a problem solved. There's been progress, but there's a ways to go yet. If I were still at Interscope, here are the things that I'd be worried about. Pay attention to this one, guys. Mm -hmm. I'd be worried that I don't have a direct relationship with my consumer. The artists in the the streaming platforms do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to repeat that one more time. I'd be worried that I don't have a direct relationship with my consumer, but my artists and the streaming platforms do. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the way the record business used to work. You know, corporate DNA matters right? Mm-hmm. It's something that you can count on just the same way that, I mean, this sounds strange, but the DNA between sports rivalries, right? There's some matchups in basketball and college basketball and college football that are always the dice are tumbling because of the history of those. The DNA is there. How they say, throw out the records when these two get together. It's going to be a slobber knocker. It doesn't matter if one's up this year, one's down. When they get together, throw out the record books and it's anyone's ball game. Exactly. Exactly. And so with corporate DNA, I mean, you have the record industry has never, ever known who you are as the end user, right? How many CDs, eight tracks, cassette tapes, albums have you purchased in your life? And they don't know who you are because you've never been their customer. Their customer's always been the distributors. Their customer's been Best Buy, Walmart, Sam Goody Music, Tower Records, Musicland, mom and pop record stores who buy boxes of records and then sell them. That's who they get paid from. That's the definition of a customer, Mm -hmm. okay? Compare that to Amazon. What does Amazon know about you? Way too much. Holy cow. Everything. They know what's on the underwear. Yeah, they know how often you buy it. Exactly. They know how I run through them. They probably know know what you looked at buying but didn't buy. And they keep all that data and all those algorithms are working to help them market products. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So you see why I've been saying this forever. Like the record industry has to move from where they are now, which is the way they've kind of always been operating into operating more like Amazon on top of being the good stewards of talent and developers of talent, et cetera, et cetera. You know, because what it comes down to, the music labels are middlemen, right? Just like they're just another right. version of a middleman, just like Spotify or Amazon or whoever. <laughs> streaming such a brilliant way to put that. Say that one more time. The labels are just acting as another middleman, just like Spotify. Yeah. It's just now another think about, step. It's just more middle. Think about that from the artist's perspective, right? Prior to all this, prior to the 2010s, you don't get an audience without a label. Right. Not an audience big enough, mm -hmm. right? Because they're, they're the bank and their distribution. Yeah, yeah, and, and they have a relationship with radio. Mm -hmm. Listen, most people are aware of this who are in the music industry, but there might be some people who never thought about it from this perspective, some artists that are out there, some musicians that are out there who never understood this. But in the heyday of the music industry, we had about, what, seven or eight-ish major labels, and each of those major labels had a pretty solid average of about 500 artists apiece, and 95% of the artists lost money. Mm-hmm. But it's not because they sucked. It's because they couldn't find an audience, but it wasn't because the audience wasn't interested in being found. It's that there's only 12 songs an hour on the radio. Yeah. And so there was a mathematical log jam there and they couldn't get in front of enough eyeballs to grow the audience. So they lost and the ones who got on the radio won. They made so much money. It covered all the losses from the end. But as an artist, Brent, let me ask you this. From an artist's perspective, when you hear Jimmy Iovine say, I'd be worried that I don't have a direct relationship with my consumers and the artists and the streaming platforms do, your point about them being the middleman is exactly right. Now they're becoming a cumbersome middleman mm -hmm. in the commerce, yeah, in the easy flow of commerce. Okay, now he goes even better here. He goes, I'd be worried that artists like Drake or Billie Eilish streams more than the entire decade of the 1980s, <laughs> according to the information I've seen from labels and streaming services. I'd also be worried that the streaming services aren't making enough money because that can jackknife. Well, mm. that is going to jackknife. 
Okay. The relationship that Spotify has with all the labels now is unsustainable. So Spotify is such a big brand. It'll probably still be around, but it will be different. You know, mm-hmm. Amazon can afford to not make money on streaming because it's a loss leader for them. Yeah. Right. And for that matter, so can Apple. Apple makes money selling electronic products, not streaming music. You know, are they trying to be profitable on that? Yeah, but there's a lot of wiggle room to go. So they might be able to afford the adaptations that are going to come, the unsustainability of the business, because to them, it's a branding thing and it's a loss leader. Yeah, that's just what I was thinking was branding because their Apple, their creativity, their art, their youth, you know, so it makes sense for them to be in the music, not just players, but streaming, that sort of stuff. It's brand congruent with how you think about Apple. Yeah. Spotify is going to be absorbed by a label or they're going to just end up dropping all of that and just be a a podcast service. Mm -hmm. Because I'm telling you right now, whatever money Spotify is making, that's it's not enough. Right. But if you own the rights to the content that's creating the traffic because you own the traffic because you're the record label, whatever you're paying Spotify is too much. (laughs) Yeah. It's because you don't need to pay them. Because you have the traffic. This is why all the networks started streaming their own stuff. At the time, nobody was going to Netflix for Netflix. They were going to Netflix to see Friends. Now, one thing that is interesting, though, is in a way, Spotify is bringing traffic if you're hoping to get your artists discovered. Because, like, I'm on Amazon Music. So this morning, before I hopped in the shower, get that image out of your mind, (laughs) I put it on uh, a playlist. And I put it on like, I don't know, like Rising Country or one of those that's like, oh, here's, let me listen to some stuff I don't already know. Because I already know what I know. Uh-huh. I want to hear what's not my jam. And, uh, you know, hear something good. Like, who is that? Oh, okay, interesting. And so in a way, like Amazon, which is a streaming service, is bringing some traffic to these artists that I might not have heard about otherwise. So I think there is a, a give and a take. And I think that's why the labels are playing ball with them is because like, well, they are bringing some ears that we may not get otherwise. Yeah. But no, Mm -hmm. see, I disagree with that. And I'll tell you why, because Spotify is not bringing the ears. It's the traffic from those other artists that you haven't heard about. That's bringing the ears and Spotify has the Mm -hmm. data and they need Mm -hmm. the data, right? Like what a cost to break an artist right now Mm -hmm. is astronomical, right? We're talking millions of dollars, but I've always been of the position like at Daredevil, like give me a budget for one P1 radio single. Give me a $500,000 mm. budget and we can do more damage and make an artist profitable oh, with hey. that amount of money so that they can afford a longer mm. runway, right, to take off, which is intolerable. Long runways are intolerable if you're dropping 500 grand on one single and maybe after two singles, you've dropped a million dollars plus radio tour and plus the cost of the record and plus mm. the cost of all the other promotion. And you're like, you know what? this isn't going to work. And so we got to cut bait, right? And the artist doesn't get a chance. But if you can make them profitable early, you can afford to make a Frank Zappa artist way, way, way bigger than he was because you're not bound by the commerce of it and you're not bound by... You could be a lot more efficient and find the people that are going to like that Frank Zappa art. Yeah. And so, I mean, two things here. The point that he said about the artists have a relationship with the consumer and so do the DSPs and they don't. But imagine being able to pick out digitally who the early adopters are, Mm -hmm. who the pioneers are in the marketplace, right? Like, here's this group of people 
that always got to be first. This is the guy, this is the girl who are the first one on your block with that new artist you never heard of because they spend a large amount of their time searching mm-hmm. for new artists because they like yeah. to be that person. Okay. And the rest of the world, it's not going to show up on their radar screen until it becomes more popular. How important are those people? They're the new DJs. They're the new Wolfman Jack. Jack. Yeah. You know, you had to get That's one of exactly those, like, right. we got to get one of these cool DJs on this song or like Bobby Bones, right? So he helped break Chris Jansen and Chris Stapleton and maybe some other Chris's, but because Chris Jansen didn't have anything. I mean, he had a label deal. It That went away. He's independent. He puts out this thing. They'll buy me a boat. And Bobby Bones digs it and he spins it. And Bobby has a big audience, but he's like, I played it because it was cool. Not because he was on label or not because he wasn't on label. I thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. I spun it. Next thing you know, Chris Jansen's freaking Chris Jansen. And he always was, right? But now he gets to be that on a bigger now stage. Now people know about it. Now he gets to be that <laughs> on a bigger stage and in cooler <laughs> rooms because Bobby Bones was a trendsetter, a curator, right? Yeah. And so these early adopters, they're the new DJs of digital Digital jockeys, right? They are. They're digital jockeys. Still DJ. And they've always been that though, right? They've always been that. And here's the difference. I'm going to try to explain this because I don't know if I can do a good job of explaining it. But if you think about, we've we've said before, like Uh Seth Godin, people like us buy products like that. When you extrapolate that Mm -hmm. into the music industry, it's people like us love artists like that. Okay. So the first 300,000 Nirvana records of Nevermind were purchased by people who were fanatical about Nirvana, who really freaking loved Nirvana. And the other 9.7 million were bought by people who want to identify with people who really <laughs> like Nirvana. Okay. And it's those 300,000 people, if they don't come into the market first, the other 9.6 million yeah. aren't going to. Okay, But when you're doing broadcast platforms, when you're trying to break that band on radio, it's the same price for everybody. You're going to get that new person who's going to be a real hardcore fan, that super fan. And you're also paying to get in front of the vast majority of the audience who isn't going to give a crap mm-hmm. until they come in, until those right, other people come in. They're not going to give a crap until a certain number of people give a crap. Exactly. So think about it this way. You brought up Luke Bryan before, right? Like Luke Bryan, six number ones. Lots of people love Luke like Bryan. Six Millions number of people, ones country icon, superstar. Yeah. <laughs> one record, right? Never been done before. Thank you. Never been done before in the genre of country music. But the people who don't like Luke Bryan are equally as passionate. Mm-hmm. They think he's the devil. They think he ruined country music and ushered in bro country and they can't stand Luke Bryan. And this doesn't matter to a major label when they're paying a half a million dollars to promote a Luke Bryan single, they're spending a boatload of money to put that in front of people that they know don't like their artist. Now, it doesn't matter so much when you reach Luke Bryan status, but when you're trying to break an artist, if you can digitally identify those first 300,000 people that are going to be the ones in this genre that are going to make your artist profitable and move that needle before you even begin to blow up the rest of the market, and you can treat them like rock stars. I'm talking like limousines mm-hmm. to shows at a club, you know, like we understand who you are. You're an influencer. It's important that you come in here because these are the people who really, really love brand new music. And then by the time you shift your marketing efforts to the other 9.7 million people, there's a party going on and they want to know why they haven't heard of it. This is a much more efficient way. 
a much less expensive way to break an artist instead of spraying and praying and hoping yeah, it's, that it catches on. Well, it's like on. the domino thing, right? Yeah. You can try to push over a domino as big as a door, and it takes a lot more effort than knocking over a small domino. But if that small domino is the lead domino, it can knock over a bigger domino. And that bigger domino can knock off a bigger one. Next thing you know, you're at the size of a door and you just knocked over the small little domino. It has that kind of effect. They're the small domino that if you can find them and if you can hire them, maybe you can hire the A team. Sorry. If you can find them, then you, you push that lead domino over and then you can get to the big mass market, the late adopters, a lot more easily. Yeah, and and the brand is ready to be introduced to or the if mass it sucks, market. You find that out earlier and cheaper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. If it's just not happening, we can cut bait and try another single. Like you want to fail expensive, or you want to fail cheap. Exactly. Right. So this is what I'm talking about. Like if you think back to the Amazon thing, like they know what you bought, they know what you looked mm-hmm. at but didn't purchase. They followed you around with it. They know your credit card. They know your email address. They know your phone number. They have all your shipping addresses of your friends and family. Like the labels don't have that information. And when they do, and they mm-hmm. will get it, it's going to make it a lot more efficient to get an artist in front of your face, right? Because, hey, we've got all this data. But as far as the Spotify thing is concerned, in country music, the discovery part of that is really, for all intents and purposes, non-existent. Now, I think maybe it happens a little bit in pop, but it's not really helping that much on the discovery thing. And I think there's some other yeah. reason. That's another episode. You probably episode, get more discovery but, on TikTok. But, um, I mean, that's where Old Town Road so. blew up and this, yeah. this other stuff. Because there's way more repetition, right? Yeah. I'll be on there scrolling through every once in a while, and you'll hear the same song used for tons of videos. They just kind of go viral, and people pick what's popular because they're trying to get optimized. <laughs> you know, oh, this is popular. Let me hop on this trend. Yeah. And you start getting those, yeah. those reps of, of just hearing this bit of this thing. You're like, who is that if it's good? And on that note, if you put a gun to my head, I can probably rattle off three or four artists I I know of that broke Mm -hmm. on TikTok. I still am not sure. I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know of one who broke on Spotify, you know? So there's that, right? And that's extremely important to our audience right now, because this is what you're trying to do is break. You're trying to get that audience to be bigger. labels will look at your streaming numbers if they're legit, like, I want to spin your stuff. Oh, yeah. That is something they look at. But then they may pluck you from there and put the major money behind you. But, I mean, that's why Old Town Road was such a big thing. Like, he blew up on TikTok and Blanco Brown had stuff that blew up. Yeah. But, yeah, who's the Spotify story or the Amazon music story of that? Yeah, they don't exist. I mean, at least not in any amount outside mm-hmm. of like a lottery right. ticket winner or two. Right. And they certainly exist, but that is not the norm. But here we've got, you know, YouTube boatloads of artists that have broken on YouTube and boatloads of artists who make very comfortable six and seven figure livings on YouTube and TikTok, same Mm -hmm. thing going there, right? So it's going to fold in. The rights owners are going to absolutely be in charge of it and collecting all the money. It has to go that way. It's unsustainable without it going that way, okay? So here's the last part of this that I want to share so we can wrap this up. So the next question is, what about the future of the record business? Why should the next Billie Eilish sign with a record Mm -hmm. company at all? Why should the next Billie Eilish sign with a record company at all? Here's his answer. The artist now has something they've never had before, which is a massive direct communication with their audience from their house, from their bed, from their car, whatever. And because of that, everybody Mm -hmm. wants them. Spotify wants them. Pepsi wants them. 
Coke wants them. Apple Music wants them. And people that make terrible second records are still <laughs> famous and still have online audiences. The power of celebrity, this obsession with Instagram, it's driven by personality and lifestyle. So here it is. Guys, this is going to make your whole holiday season. So hail to the artists, because in the end, they're winning. It isn't their problem to figure out how the streaming company and the record company are going to make more money. It's the streaming company and the record company's problem to figure out how to become more valuable to mm -hmm. that artist. Guys, I mean, that's from Jimmy Iovine. This is the new record industry. And you need to be playing the game and you need to be moving your chess pieces on this board so that it looks like this, right? If you're still the artist that's looking for the record label to provide value to you, do you see how the recipe is yeah. already wrong? Mm -hmm. That's from the top, man. That's from the top as high up as you can get, right? And he gets it. And believe me, Everything will adapt and the labels will change. And that's what will it'll be mm -hmm. more partnerships that are involved. There's going to be more money for artists and for writers. Okay. Because they own mm -hmm. the traffic. Okay. Labels aren't going to be able to sign artists for big, big record deals that are really long anymore because artists don't need that security. Right. In fact, it's going to be against artists' better interest to do that. Like if we have a big brand name right now and I'm an artist that's making a million dollars a year as my business. And then I sign with you because mm. I want to make $10 million a year and we go and do that. Well, now I got a bigger brand name, but it's still my yeah. name they're looking for. Not Universal, not Sony, not Warner Music, mm -hmm. not Broken Bow Record. They're right. looking for me. Okay? And so I own the traffic. And so what would labels do? Do you see how that's unsustainable, what, right? What's scary is a cheap way for them to go in and it's like, oh, we'll do all the internet marketing and we'll get, we'll find out who your fans are and we'll own that information. And then you're locked He's like, if I leave, yeah. they keep my email list. Like who has ownership of that? You don't want to be an artist that the minute you leave the label, they're like, all right, we're keeping the list though of like everybody who's bought your records the last four years. You got to go find them again. Yeah. Well, crap. Yes. Why I mean, because they'll mean, figure that out, crazy, they'll do right? that, and they'll want to own it because that's leverage, that's value. It's, the money's that's in the where list. the money is, and yes. If you don't own that list, you don't own much. I mean, you know, like, yeah, you have a great product, but again, how are you going to get to the people that love it and would love it? And want more of it. So. so this is the free market at work. And remember when we talked about like when Sony sold their Spotify shares and they said they're going to offer a little bit of money mm -hmm. to their artists. And that was like a mind blow because it was a benevolent move. Never heard from, yeah, never right. done before by a record label uh, because that was the crack starting to show. Like in 2018, they started to realize, okay, we're going to need to do more. Mm -hmm. to keep them on board because they don't necessarily need us yeah. to get to radio anymore. Like they can get to that audience directly. And then the bigger story was two weeks after that when Beggar's Table, which was a significant indie label, came in and said, hey, we made $130 million selling our shares of stock and we gave 47% of it to our artists and very little of it was for recoup. So artists on that label got a big, fat, stinky mm -hmm. check. Just for being part of the home game. Do you see what's happening, people?
Do you see how the playing field is leveling out? And do you see that, you know, if we go back to my last episode of Moneyball for the music business, your problem isn't that you're not on radio. Your problem isn't that you don't have a major label deal. Your problem isn't that you don't have a booking agent. Your problem is you don't have traffic and you need to create the traffic. And when you start creating the traffic, the whole music industry is going to be your bitch. (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) I don't need you you need me how are you going to add value to Mm -hmm. me instead of having your hat in your hand going I wish someone would sign me this is what we have been talking about for four and a half years and I was just so excited to read Mm -hmm. that article Brent I mean I was like there it is I see the same thing he sees and so now I know I'm not crazy I know it, you know, now, and now aside from that and just about everything I think you and I have predicted has happened. Yeah. So anyway, guys, well, uh, listen, download the free PDF informational packet. Okay. This is for you. No cost. It's 21 biggest reasons you don't have more fans and how to fix it. This is going to help you get your head straight, untie the knot of what you've been chasing as far as what you think is going to help you get ahead and focus on the stuff that is actually going to help you get ahead in the new music business, go to giftfromjohnny.com, J-O-H-N-N-Y, giftfromjohnny.com, and tell us where to send it. We are available for consultations. Send an email to info at daredevilproduction.com. Production, there's no S, uh, so it's just singular, info at daredevilproduction.com. Put consultation, the subject line, and we can help you connect some of the dots with your specific situation. Here's the assets. Here's what you need to work on. Here's what you need to spend your money on. Everybody's got a budget. I understand. But make sure that you're spending it in the right thing, in the right place, and that you're moving the needle forward. Okay? Um, We're here to help, guys. This podcast exists because we want you to win. So keep on climbing. And we'll see you at the top. And that was not one of your shorter episodes. I know. <laughs> and the American Songwriter Podcast Network is going to slap that really explicit thought. label on our podcast no matter what. John is going to use it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm taking a little bit of leeway there. <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.